invite you to take your Bible and be finding your place with me in the seventh chapter of Amos, Amos chapter 7. Chapter 7 really begins a third and final section of the book of Amos, which we've been studying over the summer. In chapters 1 and 2, through a series of oracles, Amos warned the people of God against judgment that was coming. We saw from chapters 3 through 6, through a series of messages that he preached, uh, Amos confronted the people with their sins of religious hypocrisy and uh, social disobedience, injustice. And now we come to this third and final section in the book, chapters 7, 8, and 9, you'll see that through a series of visions that he's given, the prophet Amos presents Israel with some pictures of what judgment will involve, what it will look like once it arrives. Now, I know that all of us are familiar with the importance of pictures, the importance of illustrations to convey some sense of meaning. You're aware of the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words. And the idea behind that phrase is that somehow a picture can capture a sense of emotion, drive home a point that in many ways words cannot. There's something about a picture, a story, an illustration that really helps us grasp the importance of something. Uh, teachers, you realize the value of pictures and illustrations, especially those of you who are working with kids on a regular basis, you know that visual learning can sometimes be more impactful than merely auditory learning. We learn with both our eyes as well as with our ears. You think about how many of the prophets, both before Amos, both after Amos, you think about how the Lord Jesus himself, when he would teach the multitudes, oftentimes he would paint pictures. He would use illustrations from nature. Well, here in the closing chapters of Amos, God gives the prophet a series of pictures, pictures that were meant to convey some major lessons that were to be learned by God's people. And all told, there are five of these visions, or five pictures, three of which are found in the nine verses of chapter 7 that we're going to look at this morning. So Amos chapter 7, let's begin reading verse number 1. Notice Amos says this as he begins, This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive how can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? 
And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. I want to speak from this subject this morning, lessons in pictures. There are three visions contained in these nine verses. There's the vision of locusts that Amos sees. It's a vision that God gave him. There's the vision of a consuming fire of judgment that God gave him. And then there's a vision that consisted of God holding a plumb line. But with each of these visions, there are symbolic pictures, lessons that are to be conveyed to God's people. Now, you know that in the Bible, the ministry of the prophet was always twofold. On one hand, it involved the ministry of foretelling or preaching. It was the role of the prophet to declare the word of God that had been revealed to him. And yet, on the other hand, the ministry of the prophet involved foretelling the future that God had revealed to that prophet, who was then commanded to write it down uh, so that God's people could be instructed on that basis. In fact, we saw this back in chapter 3, verse 7, where the text says that the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. So before God would do something, whether it be acting uh, as far as a means of judgment or whatever, God would raise up prophets and to those prophets, he would reveal his word, who were to preach his word. But oftentimes, God would show those prophets what the future held for God's people, especially as it pertained to judgment. And so from that vision, God's people were to, uh, they were to respond in repentance and faith. Uh, it was intended to be a message that the prophet preached uh, to get the attention of God's people. So here you have Amos, up until this point, he's preached what God has revealed to him. He's, he's been foretelling, and now God has given the prophet some pictures of what judgment will look like once it comes. And so in that sense, he is foretelling. And in these closing chapters, God gives him five dramatic visions concerning the future of Israel. And again, the first three are found here in chapter 7. And these three visions uh, teach some very important lessons in the form of pictures. And so what are these lessons from these three visions in chapter 7? Well, with the vision of locust, the first lesson is this. God is sovereign over circumstances. That's the first lesson that's being conveyed here through this first picture or vision that Amos is given. Locusts that were being prepared by the Lord that would devour Israel's harvest. And so Amos describes what he's shown by the Lord there in verses 1, 2, and 3. So a couple of things about this. The agricultural significance of this kind of thing happening. A plague of locusts. Now that might not seem like such a big deal to us. But let me tell you, in those days... In an agricultural society like Israel, this would have been catastrophic. And the timing of this particular event is important to pay attention to. Because verse 1 says that God was forming these locusts 
when the later growth was just beginning to sprout. And then for the sake of emphasis, he says, behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. And so part of the economic system in the northern kingdom involved the first crop of the harvest going to the king as sort of an income tax. We might be able to identify with that in some respects, where the government is always going to get the government's cut. But why was this important? Well, because the government had to be funded. Uh, The military had to be supplied. So the king would levy a tax on a farmer's crop so that he could fund his government. And the first crop of the summer always went to the king. And so that left the second crop of the harvest for the people. And so in this vision that Amos is being shown, uh, it's this second crop, the crop that went to the people that the locusts were poised to destroy. These locusts are about to descend upon their crops, which meant these locusts would consume their livelihood, what they had worked so very hard for. And because it was the second and last crop of the harvest, that meant there would be no more opportunity for God's people, which would then give rise to famine. There would be no food for the winter. And so this is a vision of severe economic deprivation. And as someone with a farming or a rural background, Amos knew that this plague would have a devastating effect. A single swarm of locusts could strip an entire harvest in just a moment's time. Now you say, well, that was then. What about now? Does this kind of thing still happen? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because there were some interesting headlines that came out in 2020 of all years. But BBC, there was an article that caught my attention at the time when it came out. I saw it, but it said, locust plague of biblical proportion affects parts of Africa and the Middle East. And basically, in this particular article, Um, desert locusts swarmed upon crops there in parts of Uganda and Kenya, certain parts of the Middle East. But listen to this. All combined, a swarm of 80 million locusts can consume food equivalent to that eaten by 35,000 people a day. A single plague of locusts. And so this kind of thing still happens in certain parts of the world. And in those parts of the world, the fallout from this kind of event has devastating consequences leading to famine, leading to hunger, starvation. And so Amos is being given a glimpse of natural disaster and how it would prove to be crippling to Israel's economy. So that's the agricultural significance of this, but beyond that, this event has theological significance. Because pay close attention to the words of verse number one. Amos says, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locust when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. So in other words, this plague was not some random event. The timing of this particular plague was not a thing of coincidence. This was something being prepared by the sovereign hand of God intended as a means of judgment. It brings to mind the eighth plague in Exodus chapter 10 where a swarm of locusts devastated the crops of the Egyptians as God was bringing his people out of Egypt. 
But pay close attention to the name of God, the compound name of God that's being used here in this chapter. Notice Amos says, this is what the Lord God showed me. Lord God, uh, the name is Yahweh Adonai. This is a compound name for God, which means the I am who is Lord. Or the I am who is boss. The self-existent one who is imperfectly, who is perfectly in control of every circumstance that happens in life. And this name for God, it's used a total of six times in these nine verses. You ought to go through these nine verses and underline this, this name for God, Lord God. Some translations translate it this way, Sovereign Lord. Now you want to put that in perspective? Up until this point, this name for God has been used six times in the previous six chapters. But here it's being used six times in rapid fire in nine verses And the point that's being driven home is this. God is sovereign over the circumstances of life. And as such, he uses those circumstances to achieve the purposes that he himself has determined. And in this case, he was orchestrating a plague of locusts that would consume the harvest as a means of judgment. And in many ways, this is simply a picture of what would happen a generation later when the Assyrians would invade the land and take away captive the people of the northern kingdom and destroy Samaria. That happened in 722 B.C. But the lesson here is this, folks. God is sovereign over the happenings of our lives. And he's going to use any means necessary to achieve his purpose. What's the purpose of God for my life as a believer? I'll tell you what it is. It's that my life be brought into conformity with his son, Jesus Christ. And God will use the circumstances and the happenings of life in some way to achieve that purpose. Me being molded and conformed to the image of his own son. Which tells me that things that happen in life, the good and the bad, the ugly and the beautiful, somehow all of this is being woven together uh, into a tapestry of God's grace. And we may not be able to understand it from our particular vantage point, but God understands it with perfect wisdom from his vantage point. I don't know what it does for your theology when you read something like this in verse 7, but God is the one who's forming the locust. This is not a plague that's going to come that he's not in control of. This is something that finds its origin in himself. And Amos is able to discern the hand of God in this as well as the heart of God behind this. Go back to chapter 3, verse 6. The question is asked, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Somehow in his permissive will, God allows the bad and even the painful to come into our lives. And yet we can trust his heart that's revealed in Scripture that somehow it's serving his ultimate purpose. Alistair Begg says of this particular text, he says that it's only because God's wrath is real that his mercy is relevant. In other words, think about this. Mercy wouldn't mean anything if God wasn't holy If God's wrath wasn't a reality, then grace, mercy, 
these, would, these wouldn't mean anything. But mercy only means something because God is indeed a God of judgment and justice. And that's what's being conveyed here through these nine chapters in the book of Amos. So confronted with the severity of this, what does Amos do? He appeals to what he knows about God. God is holy. As such, God must meet sin in the fierceness of his wrath. But what does Amos do in this text? He appeals to the wideness of God's mercy. Verse two, he says, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Now listen to this. Verse three says, the Lord relented concerning this and God said it shall not be. That doesn't mean that he's turning a blind eye to their sin, but this is a demonstration of God's patience with a stubborn people. This is his mercy that's being appealed to here. So God is sovereign over the circumstances of life. Now folks, listen to me. From a practical standpoint, I don't know what it is that at times we fear may be over the horizon. But a lot of times, we tend to fear what could happen, what might happen. We know that life has this way of just throwing a curveball our way that we never saw coming. And oftentimes when painful things happen, when even disaster occurs, when the locusts begin to swarm, at times it seems like it's completely out of the blue from our perspective. And if we're not careful, we can think that these kinds of things take God off guard. But the fact is, he's sovereign over circumstance. While it may take me by surprise, it never takes him by surprise. He's the one who's forming the locust. His sovereign hand is behind it. He's directing it to its end, and it's to that hand that Amos is making his appeal here. So this first vision of locust enforces this lesson. Uh, God is sovereign over circumstance. Now, number two. There's a second vision here in this passage, and it's the vision of fire. And this particular picture reinforces this lesson. Prayer is significant to the divine plan. God is sovereign over the circumstances of life, but this passage also teaches us that prayer is somehow mysteriously significant to the accomplishing of God's divine purposes, his plan. So this judgment by fire, the locusts, they're going to devour what's green. Amos sees that in the first vision. But now the fire, well, this is something that can destroy literally everything. You know that fire is one of the most destructive forces on the planet leaving absolutely nothing untouched in its path. I think about the wildfires that are burning right now out west. I read this week, I think it was the Caldor Fire that has already grown to be nearly three quarters the size of the city of Chicago. And it was a blaze that got started just a week ago. So these fires can just absolutely be so destructive. Imagine you've got a front row seat to that kind of blaze that's burning out west. Well, Amos has given a front row seat to something here that is far worse. And, and what God shows him, it's not a forest fire, it's not some out of control campfire. 
But this is an inferno that's all-consuming that it devoured. The text says the depths. The idea is it consumes the sea. It destroys the land. And so if natural disaster is something being described with the first vision, the vision of the locust, it could very well be that this is a supernatural disaster. It could very well be described or, or, or similar to what Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter 3 when he talks about the final day of the Lord when he says that the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will melt with fervent heat, the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So locusts that devour, fire that destroys, these are terrible circumstances and God is showing Amos a picture of just how bad things can get. God's not making an idle threat here, but he's graphically illustrating how serious their sins were. And as such, God is showing Amos a picture of what sin truly deserves. So what does the prophet do when he's confronted with these pictures of the consequences of judgment? Listen to me. He cries out to God as an intercessor. He intercedes on behalf of God's people, fully aware of the fact that their sin demands judgment. He's appealing to God's mercy. What does God do in response to Amos' prayer here in this passage? Well, the Bible says he relents. In other words, the prayer life of the prophet is significant to the divine plan. (laughs) He's crying out in prayer and intercession, and God responds to those cries of intercession. It reminds me of what Abraham does whenever the Lord and those two angels make a visit to Abraham, and God lets Abraham in on what he's about to do as far as the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he tells Abraham that the cries of those cities have come up to him and God's about to intervene in judgment. And what does Abraham begin to do? He begins to plead with the Lord. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He says, Lord, suppose that there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the sake of 50 who are in it? He says, far be it from you, Lord, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So what's Abraham doing there? He's appealing to both God's justice and his mercy, recognizing that sin has got to be met in the fierceness of God's wrath, but he's also appealing to God's mercy. God is perfect in judgment. God is perfect in mercy. And God tells Abraham, he says, I won't destroy the city for the sake of 50. Abraham says, what about 45? God says, I won't destroy it for the sake of 45. What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And God says, for the sake of 10, I won't destroy it. Folks, that's what intercession does. It's going before God, appealing to God on the basis of what we know about God, but we're appealing to him on behalf of someone else. Moses does the same thing in Exodus chapter 32. You remember he'd been there on the mountain with God, receiving the law. Meanwhile, the people were 
they'd gotten bored, they'd gotten distracted, they make a golden calf and they're worshiping that golden calf. And God says to Moses, he says, let me consume this people in my wrath and I'll make a great nation out of you. You know what Moses does? Moses begins to intercede. He begins to plead with God. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember your promise. So he's appealing to God on the basis of what he knows about God. And the Bible says the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken. So intercessory cries. Somehow this is part of the divine plan to save people. You you see this all throughout scripture. Folks, you see this all throughout history. Let me tell you, there are some things God will not do. Some things that only God will do in response to obedient praying. That's just the way that God's orchestrated it. He's ordained prayer as a means of carrying out his will. That's why James could say this in James 5.16, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I'm not sure we really believe this, or else we would take prayer much more seriously than we do. It's not a good luck charm. It's, It's not like some magic eight ball that we shake. It's not a ritual of words that we speak over our meal before we eat. No, praying ought to be as natural for the people of God as breathing. It's the reflex of faith in the life of the child of God. It's out of a sense of burden that we cry out to our Father. We call upon the name of the Lord. I know you've heard this quote by Ian Bounds, but he said, what the church needs today, it's not more machinery, not better, new organizations or novel methods, but people whom the Holy Spirit can use, those of prayer, those who were mighty in prayer. Amos is interceding here on behalf of God. He's appealing to God's mercy. John Piper said that prayer is the open admission that without Christ we can do nothing. Prayer is the turning away from ourselves to God in the confidence that he will provide the help that we need. So prayer humbles us as needy and exalts God as all sufficient. By the way, look at at how many times you see the church engaged in prayer in the book of Acts. And then consider what it is that moves the church to pray in the book of Acts. You know what it is? Crisis. Often it seems like the purpose of God is is threatened to be derailed in some way and that moves the people of God to pray whether it be persecution, that's a crisis, whether it be uh, Peter and John being locked up in prison, that's a crisis that moves God's people to pray, whether it be division between the widows that were being neglected and the infighting, Satan couldn't attack the church on the outside, so he tries to get it on the inside. That moves God's people to pray. The the apostles say, listen, y'all find some men who can handle this thing. We're going to give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And in each and every time, God moves in response to those prayers in the carrying out of his divine will and accomplishing his purposes. So Amos understands that God's people are in a crisis. They're between a rock and a hard place. Disaster threatens to engulf them. Their sin deserves judgment. 
But oh, he's appealing to God on the basis of his mercy. And notice two times here in the text, the Bible says the Lord relented. The Lord relented. Wasn't it the prophet Ezekiel to whom the Lord says, I'm searching for a man to stand in the gap, someone to intercede, someone to serve as a go-between? Who knows what you've been spared from in your own individual life? Who knows who's been praying for you, who's been secretly going into their prayer closet, interceding on your behalf? Going before a holy God on your behalf. Some of you, you're doing that right now on behalf of someone else that you love. Maybe there's a child, maybe there's a neighbor, maybe there's someone you work with. And to this point, it doesn't seem like God is responding to your prayer, but let me tell you something. Prayer is somehow mysteriously connected to the achieving of God's divine purposes. So pray on through. Don't get discouraged. Don't quit. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman, the Bible says it availeth much. It accomplishes much, even when it seems like it doesn't. Let me give you one final lesson here, and it's the vision of the plumb line, the third vision. And the lesson that's made here, or the point that's being made, is that humanity is subject to moral accountability. This third vision that was shown the prophet, behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line. The plumb line was in God's hand. And God asks Amos this question, what do you see? And Amos says, I I see a plumb line. What's a plumb line? (laughs) When I was a teenager, I spent one summer working with a brick mason. And there were several... um, projects that I worked with him on, but I learned real quick how important a plumb line was when laying brick on top of brick. Now, you know what a a plumb line is. It's a string that has a weight that's attached to the end. And so whenever the string is held up, the weight is pulled down by gravity, and the result is a true vertical. And so a brick wall that's built true to plumb will be in line with that plumb line. The plumb line is what results in you being able to build a straight wall instead of a crooked wall. If you say, well, I'm just going to eyeball it <laughs> without a plumb line, what's going to happen? You're going you're to get to the end of the project and you're going to have a, here's a good word, cattywampus, right? Your wall's going to be all cattywampus. It's going to be totally out of plumb. That's why you need a plumb line. Well, here's what God's doing. He's got a plumb line in this third vision. He's holding it in his hand. The wall of Israel is cattywampus. It's all out of plumb. They were saying one thing, but they were doing another. Again, look at what society had become in Amos' day. You had the religious elite. You had the establishment. Man, they were flocking to their shrines and their sanctuaries, but it was all hypocritical worship. It didn't result in love for their neighbor. Justice was perverted. God steps into the situation. He says, listen, I'm holding up my plumb line, and I'm showing the wall is not plumb. So God is saying he's about to check Israel to see if the nation is as upright as it claims to be. 
Back in the beginning, God had graciously called the people to himself. He had given them his law to govern their religious and their political lives. But will they pass the test now? And we know the answer if we've learned anything from the book of Amos. They've deviated. And so God is intervening. And notice he says there in verse 8, I'm holding the plumb line in the midst of my people and I will never pass by them again or I will spare them no longer. And then unlike the first two visions, there's no intercession made by the prophet here. Their sins were deserving of the locust and the fire and God had been mercifully patient but there comes a point in time when God's patience is exhausted and the day of reckoning comes. And so the point then being driven home here by this third vision is that humanity, men and women, humanity is subject to moral accountability. There is an objective standard of what's right and wrong and that standard is fixed. That standard is not determined by society. That standard is not determined by the culture. That standard has been determined by the creator himself. And it's not subject to the prevailing winds of changing cultural opinion. God is the one who establishes what righteousness is, what holiness is, what sin is. And he's holding the plumb line in his hand. And let me tell you, the standard is himself revealed in his self-revelation of himself that's disclosed to us in his word. So, What's the plumb line? The plumb line is God in his righteousness. That's the plumb line. God in himself. You say, all right, well, if God himself in his perfection, if he's the plumb line and he's holding that plumb line against all of our lives, who measures up? The plumb line is God's law. God gave his law to his people. Now listen, here's the point being made. You go to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and listen to this. The point is God redeemed his people and then he gave his people the law. God didn't redeem his people because his people had kept his law. When God redeemed his people, they were the smallest and most insignificant of peoples. It wasn't because of anything they had done. It was only by means of his grace that God redeemed the people for himself out of Egypt. And then he brings them to the base of Mount Sinai and there on the mountain, what does God do to those that he's redeemed in his grace? He gives them a revelation of himself in his law. And his word, his written law was then to frame up their way of life. And their obedience to his law, this was not their means of redemption. It was the evidence that they had been redeemed. But somewhere along the way, Israel missed that. The same as any person who misses it when they think that they themselves and their own practical righteousness, their own good works, this is the plumb line. That's never the plumb line that God uses. You know what we often have in our hip pocket? I'll tell you what we have. We have our own little plumb line that we like to pull out, that we like to apply to everybody else's life. It's our plumb line. And I'll have a relationship with you on the basis of this plumb line that I've got. And so we often set expectations for other people. They have to conform to our standards. 
And sometimes we have our little plumb line and we hold it up as if that's acceptable to a holy and perfect God. And God's not interested in your little plumb line. God has his own plumb line. And that plumb line is himself. That plumb line is his righteousness. But I've got good news for you. If that plumb line's applied to your life and you feel woefully short, it's because you are woefully short. But see, here's what God did in the person of his own son. The plumb line took on flesh and dwelt among us. He came to where we are, broken, sinful, sinners in need of grace and mercy. And yet God himself, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, bled and died for my law-breaking ways. My wall that was about to collapse and teeter and was tottering. and Oh, it was so out of plumb. It was so cattywampus. Jesus came in. And so now there's a cornerstone that's been laid in Zion that's chosen and precious. Those who were found in him will never be put to shame. That's the only plumb line that matters, isn't it, men and women? So when the test is applied to my life, listen to me, moral accountability, here's the issue. Are you found in Jesus Christ? Are you found in Jesus Christ? Israel had religion, but they didn't have righteousness, and that's what God's holding them accountable for. That's why God sent Amos into the northern kingdom with this message of repentance, this message of faith. How is it that righteousness, the true righteousness of God's plumb line, how is it that this righteousness can be true of a sinful person? It's not achieved righteousness. It's received righteousness. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. It's the righteousness which is received through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. You put your faith and your trust in God's Son, God declares you to be righteous. And then obedience then flows out of a redeemed heart. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? Man, these are some lessons in pictures, aren't they? When I think about my sin, If I got what I truly deserved, I would have to agree with God that I deserve the locusts. I deserve the fire. If I got what I truly deserved. But thank God that Jesus Christ is the one who stood in the gap. He's the go-between between God and sinful man. And on the basis of faith in Him, sinners are declared to be righteous and you receive the righteousness of God as a gift through faith in God's own son and folks that's the lesson that's being conveyed through the vision of the locust the fire and the plumb line every head bowed every eye closed this is good news for any person Amen. you feel like oh I come up short my life is out of plumb when God's plumb line's held against my life, I know that in and of myself, my life's out of plumb. My wall is crooked. But listen, that's why God gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you know Jesus? And if you know Jesus, let me ask you this question. Christian man, Christian woman, in terms of your relationships, 
You got your own little plumb line you're kind of holding everybody else accountable to? Or do you show others the same measure of grace that God has shown you in the person of his son? Lord, we think about plagues of judgment. Lord, we'd have to agree with you. That's what our sin deserves. But Lord, thank you for your mercy. The wideness of God's mercy. Oh, the depth of the riches of his grace. God, in your grace, you save sinners. You change us from the inside out. Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. By means of your own supernatural power, your grace, your goodness. God, I pray these lessons would be driven home powerfully in our hearts and lives. You're sovereign over circumstance, Lord, both the good and the bad. We know that prayer is significant, Lord God, to the achieving of your purposes. And Lord, humanity is subject to a standard of moral accountability, God's plumb line. Oh, but Lord, thank you for the cross. And it's to the cross of Jesus to which we come. In his precious name we pray, amen.